Hello, welcome to Film Walk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight, later in the episode, we'll be reviewing a 1961 French-Italian left bank film from director Alain Robe-Grier with a special guest, and that film is Last Year at Marienbad. But first, we'll be checking out the new film from writer-director Wes Anderson, and that is The French Dispatch. It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, the arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human interest. You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. For decent people. It's supposed to be charming. He assembled a team of the best expatriate journalists of his time. Berenson, Sazerac, Kremens, Roebuck Wright. These were his people. Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. That was from the trailer of The French Dispatch, a new anthology film written, directed, and produced by Wes Anderson and starring Benicio Del Toro, Adrian Brody, Tilda Swinton, Lea Seydoux, Francis McDormand, Timothy Chalamet, and a host of others, uh, including Bill Murray and Sir Ronan and Willem Dafoe and a bunch of other famous actors who are in this film for maybe two minutes at a time. Some of them don't even have dialogue. It's kind of remarkable how massive the cast of this movie is. Wouldn't you say, Daniel? I would agree. In addition to dozens of extras that play prisoners, student revolutionaries, uh, members of a rich art community, um, this film covers a lot of different times and places within this, uh, this fictitious French village of Ennui-sur-Blasé, including a location called the Café Sans Blague. That would be the no-joke café, because this film wants to assure you that it is being completely serious uh, with its tale of an outpost of American writers working out of a small French village uh, shot in the real French village uh, or district of Angoulême, uh, which was honestly, I could have gone either way on uh, before we saw the credits, because the film... Wes Anderson and his uh, and his creative team, they have done something here that they do quite often. They, they do these elaborate set pieces, elaborate art direction, props, costumes, but they also manage to shoot these locations in a way that makes them seem very flat, that makes them seem like they were built on a soundstage, that makes them seem a little bit extra theatrical. And I think it's fair to say that uh, when watching The French Dispatch, any of those strengths that you have found in previous Wes Anderson films, as we have. Uh, two of his films for the past decade were in my top ten for their respective years. Those were Moonrise Kingdom and The Grand Budapest Hotel. There is plenty of all of that to be found in this film. But this is something pretty different from what Wes Anderson has done before, because while it uses a lot of his familiar tricks, uh, the only through line is that this is an issue of the magazine The French Dispatch, which is loosely based on The New Yorker. Uh, many of these writers are based on real writers, or they are amalgamations of real writers. We have uh, Frances McDormand as the fictitious uh, Lucinda Kremens, and she is not based on anyone in particular. I don't know why I started with her. We have Bill Murray as Arthur Howitzer Jr., who is loosely based on Harold Ross, the co-founder of The New Yorker. Uh, we also have Jeffrey Wright as Roebuck Wright, who uh, was clearly based on James Baldwin, uh, but apparently he was also a uh, mashup of, of Baldwin and A.J. Liebling. James Baldwin, uh, American writer, homosexual academic, wrote quite a bit on race and also spent a significant amount of time outside of the United States, including in France, um, contrasting his experience as a black man there versus in the United States, uh, wrote at length on those, on those issues. Um, this film... I think it's also fair to say it relies on a lot of outside knowledge because it doesn't do much to uh, provide the to provide much of a narrative through line here other than just uh, a general feeling of France during a period of post-war ennui and uh, and maybe burgeoning but uneven prosperity. And Daniel, uh, I, I gotta say, I found this film to be a bit lacking in that way. Our main characters are essentially just observers of these stories, and that makes them feel a bit shallow as characters. Even as we're hearing them, their voiceover narration describe to us the importance of what is going on, uh, I found very little to latch onto in these stories, uh, with, with one exception. I think there was one story here that worked better than the others, but I'm curious uh, where you landed on that. So what did you think of this film? Oh boy, I never thought I would live to see The New Yorker, the movie. I... Uh... <laughs> I like Wes Anderson. His gimmick of every frame is a painting and wants to be super quirky and artsy is cool. But boy, oh boy, was this movie a bore to sit through. 
I I thought that maybe that the stories would be interconnected more than just that they were uh, you know parts of uh, or chapters uh, articles of the last you know edition of this uh, fictional magazine. But boy, I just uh, I could not get into it. I just thought it was a style over substance to the nth degree. Maybe Wes Anderson has peaked at the Grand Budapest Hotel and he can't recapture that magic. Maybe cinemas just moved on. I don't know. Like, it was okay. I liked so many of the actors involved in it. And I'm like, oh, you know, you're in this. Like, oh, look, look, it's so-and-so. And then I'm like, but they're not doing anything interesting. They're doing little dances and then they're they're being quirky on screen, but their characters mean nothing. And in some cases, they don't even have dialogue. So it's like Willem Dafoe is just there. Yeah, he, he's literally in a jail cell for about 30 seconds in a couple of different shots, and he doesn't have a single line of dialogue. It's remarkable. You know, I like The New Yorker. I read uh, I read their articles from time to time, although it requires me to have a subscription to, to read them, which is annoying. Uh, so sometimes I have to go around that. But I do. I like the writing. I think I think it could be very you know compelling. Uh, a lot of the articles in the past have, have been so, and I enjoy their comic strip. But yeah, I guess a movie version of The New Yorker just didn't land with me. <laughs> There is a journalistic credo that good journalism has both breadth and depth. It covers all of the different dimensions of an issue, but it doesn't just cover them in a shallow manner. It goes deep on all of them. It uh, it looks for multiple perspectives on all of them. And if I were, in fact, reading 14,000 words on each of these stories, I might have found them more interesting than I did here. And, you know, it, it's like you say, every frame of painting is, is certainly part of Anderson's ethos here, um, as well as his, uh, his cinematographer, uh, Robert Yeoman here. Um, and all of the the creative teams beyond, behind dressing these sets, building these things up, and just just adding more, adding another thing, adding another detail, adding another junkier showgirl. I mean, all of these things and people were basically just thrown in as uh, as just kind of disposable set dressing. And every time I saw it, I was just like, oh, you know, I appreciate the effort on that, but I felt more like I was watching a diorama than a movie. Yeah. It, it was just more, more and more and more, and so little substance to tie it together. I, I agree with you on that, and, and I appreciate it. Like, I, I, don't, I don't mean to come across so negative, I guess, because I, I appreciated the artistry behind everything he does. I just wanted more plot. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you on that. I, I think there were a couple of through lines, if I'm being maximally charitable to the film, which I'm inclined to do because I don't I don't fault this film for bad intentions or even even pretension uh, or, or even just kind of being condescending in that way that The New Yorker has that reputation of being uh, basically just fodder for the liberal elite. I don't think this movie was doing that. I think this movie was trying to tell stories that it thought mattered. I just think that it didn't really stick the landing all that much. The persistent presence of cops as agents of the status quo, and, uh, you know, the movie is is a little bit cynical about cops. They're happy to open fire, they're happy to crack down on leftist protesters. When the moment arrives when the city officials are just tired of listening to their demands, all right, time to declare a riot, riot literally in quotation marks on the uh, on the riot police's gear, um, and send in tear gas, even though they're doing what, just sitting around an alley that they barricaded. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, that there wasn't a lot there and that feels pretty shallow after you know an entire year of of reckoning with police accountability in this country and around the world the other thing about it was the film feels like it is telling us that all of these ideologies that these different people stand for ultimately fall away in favor of some viscerally and quintessentially human and corporeal experiences that's to say let's have a feast whether that feast is of food or sex that is ultimately what we do at the end of the day when we're done protesting or making art we go home and we feast and we make love that's what we do because that is how we humans feel alive and forget that we're going to die for a little while so I think there was a little bit of that going on as well which I find a little bit ironic in retrospect because the new yorker was a notoriously sexless and chaste publication the uh, the original uh the original publication guidelines basically they wouldn't even allow innuendo to creep into an article so the idea that all of these people were kind of indulging in their more baser desires in between writing these articles which probably had not even the slightest hint of those things um was an interesting point um it, it all it suggests that there's a kind of artifice around all of this was it a point or I don't know. I may be I may be reading too much into this, but it seemed like a lot of the story, a lot of the stories ended with either the participants or the writers getting involved in food, sex, or both. So that was maybe one through line I spotted there. Okay. 
So I rang a companion piece to the French Dispatch uh, after we watched the movie because uh, I was pretty sure it was about the New Yorker uh, based on everything I saw in the film, but I wanted to just double check. So I read the New Yorker writers and the editors who inspired the French Dispatch, which uh, came out in September. I want to say September 24th, written by Aaron Overbay. And it, it details what each like major character in the film and who they represented from the New Yorker and Wes Anderson's tie to the publication as to like why he loved it so much. They, they interviewed him. And it's a good, it's a good write-up, as most New Yorker articles are, are pretty well written. Uh, so if you're curious to see as to why Wes Anderson loves The New Yorker so much, I would recommend reading it. Yeah, Wes Anderson loving The New Yorker is one of those things where I don't really need an explanation. It just kind of fits. But uh, that, just the same, I will go ahead and link to that post in the show notes because I think that... Um, he tried to buy the archive. Is that right? I did not know that. Man loves his New Yorker. Well, there's probably plenty plenty of good stories there to uh, to be told. Stories. Well, so let's talk about the stories here. Uh, so the, the framing device around the outside of this is the, the French Dispatch Office, which is headed by Bill Murray's character, Arthur Howitzer Jr., who at the beginning of the film is dead. He dies at the age of 75, um, and the magazine dies with him. And that is it. Under the stipulations of his will, the printing presses are to be melted down, and then he's crossed that out and written liquefied. All the writers are to be released from their contracts and paid out, uh, and that and the, the publication of the magazine will cease. So that's it. It dies with me. That's right there in his will. Now... This sort of self-imposed gawker-like demise for this magazine notwithstanding, it, it means that the stories that we're telling are their last chance to tell a story here. It's the last articles they're ever going to publish. That said, I don't think that framing device added much. These stories didn't really have that kind of desperation. It, it kind of just made them all kind of low stakes. Like, we're just telling uh, a day in the life of different parts of the it's village. It's just the last day in the life, but yeah, it's the same Yeah, same exactly. Idea. Like, if he hadn't died, they would have done this again next month. You and I both had the same favorite uh, story here, I believe, and that was The Concrete Masterpiece by J.K.L. Berenson. Is that right? Uh, yeah, specifically because of uh, Adrian Brogy's uh, acting in that was, was quite good. So our principles here are we have Tilda Swinton as J.K.L. Berenson, who we see presenting uh, this, this, massive concrete, lo- this massive piece of load-bearing concrete with, uh, with a, you know, an abstract piece of modern art painted all across it. Massive piece of art. And it's her basically explaining uh, how this came to be here and how this piece of art came about. Um, now, that said, this is, a, once again, a framing device within a framing device here. And I have to say it's one of the worst uses I've ever seen Tilda Swinton put to. Um, she's just really not adding much here. She's barely participating in this story. She's telling a story that would have been interesting enough on its own. Um, and I think this is this is a tendency we've identified in Wes Anderson before. The Grand Budapest Hotel has, you know, multiple embedded framing devices as well. And we didn't need any of that. Um, you know, one one was enough. Uh, the story that we're telling was was plenty by itself. Um, that said, we've also got Benicio Del Toro as Moses Rosenthal, an incarcerated artist who is uh, in a, a an asylum for the violent criminally insane. Um, he has murdered two people. We do see the circumstances of that murder, and it's basically because they're bullying someone in front of him, and he proceeds to murder them off camera. Uh, and then we see that he has struck up a romance uh, with his muse, uh, played by Lea Seydoux, and this is uh, Simone, who is a prison guard. Now, the movie skates right on by what an abusive scenario this would be in real life. You know, he's a, he's a prisoner, she's a prison guard. This is not okay. Right, but this is very unhealthy. In, but it, in this context, in Wes Anderson world, where Moses Rosenthaler is clearly both a heightened character and also the romantic lead in this story, it works. And the reason why it works is because, you know, we, we get to see how these two interact with each other. Uh, from the start of, of Simone posing nude in the hobby room, and it is that piece that first gets the attention of an art collector, uh, Julian Cadazio. Uh, played by Adrian Brody, and he's apparently based on a real guy named Lord Duveen, but I don't know much else about him. Um, rich art collector, uh, ends up getting all of his rich friends involved, pays him 250,000 francs for this uh, this piece of art that originally he wanted to sell for 80 cigarettes, I think it was. It's a hell of a bargain. It's all because he wants the next one. He wants the next big thing from this artist who he thinks could be a, genera- a once-in-a-generation talent who is uh, you know, currently locked up for life for being a double murderer, which, you know, from the perspective of the weird rich person art world, just adds to his mystique. So 
all of this worked pretty well. Benicio Del Toro is very entertaining in this role, as is Leia Seydoux, uh, an actress I've seen who has been prolific in, in many things, including the most recent two James Bond films. And, but Adrian Brody is really the standout of this segment, I would agree. He is absolutely, utterly charming and also kind of despicable as this art dealer. Couldn't take my eyes off him. Yeah, I had high hopes for the rest of the, of the vignettes after that. Uh, because the one uh, that precedes that uh, is with Owen Wilson, and that one is solid. Um, you know, following, uh, telling the story of the town, right? The history of the town, how, how it's changed, how it stayed the same. Uh, all based off of a real uh, guy who, who wrote similar articles for New York City. It works. Yeah, this is Owen Wilson as Herb St. Sazerac, and what we see him doing is riding on his bicycle, or is it? was it a bicycle or was it, was it a bicycle? Scooter? Yeah, it was a bicycle. Okay. He's riding around on his bicycle around town, and that was the first time that I that I came to understand that they were shooting in a real location, or at least in a couple of real locations, because the camera does follow... Uh, follow along on his handlebars for a good amount of time there. So we get to see, I mean, they had to dress this town up properly to make it look like this time and place. And they did a fantastic job with that, obviously. And then we don't do anything else in the town. <laughs> yeah, we we hear that he writes about uh, about sort of the underclasses. We hear we hear he writes about marginalized people, and we see that all the people that he writes about are as as the uh, as the editors of this magazine put it, um, you know, junkies and uh, and showgirls and prostitutes, I guess. Um, which makes his work inherently impossible to fact check, because I guess going and talking to those people is beneath them. I, I, I don't know. I don't know why that makes his work impossible to fact check. But there you go. After Concrete Masterpiece, we have revisions to a manifesto by Lucinda Kremitz, and this is covering the May '68 protests, uh, which I'll be honest, I know very little about. I mean, 1968 had protests all around the world uh, against the Vietnam War against racism, against sexism, uh, in, in favor of environmentalism. I mean, there, there was a lot going on in that period of time. It was a very tumultuous uh, time for, for leftist social movements. And, you know, obviously we, we may be going through another period of that now, and, and we'll, we'll see what it leads into. But uh, I didn't find there to be much substance in this story. It kind of just takes for granted that you know on some level what these students are protesting about well in the, in the movie's case they were protesting that the boys wanted wanted to uh be part of the female dorm- dormitoriums yeah and i didn't really understand that the dormitories in this case being where they sleep or just they wanted to be able to go to all female schools or like what was the issue there no i got that sense that they wanted to go hook up with the gals in the other dorm okay they wanted to be allowed in the girls dorms so that they could have sex with the girls okay that, that was my read on it that yeah. was the vibe that i got as well it seemed like a very uh <laughs> it seemed like very much of a young person's protest topic which uh, seems like it was meant to strike a, a note of irony uh, within this as well. I mean, they're writing a manifesto, but it's ultimately about their desire to get laid, which is kind of where it come back to. Ultimately, the ideology doesn't matter nearly as much as their desire to indulge themselves in quintessentially human experiences. Ipso facto, we've got uh, Zeffirelli, played by Timothy Chalamet, hooking up with not only his young girlfriend, but also the writer of this story, uh, played by Francis McDormand. Um, because, you know, this is a man whose love knows no age and uh, and is happy to hook up with, uh, with uh, anyone willing. Well, anyone interesting and willing. Yeah, and uh, they are both, I-, I guess, interesting to him. Juliet, played by Lena Cowdery, uh, I don't really, I couldn't really tell you a damn thing about her, except that she's always wearing a helmet. She was young and idealistic, I guess. And she and Zeffirelli end up having a disagreement over the nature of the manifesto, and that ends up, uh, because because Kremens ends up, ends up sort of ghostwriting the manifesto for them, they end up getting into a bickering match over it, and that kind of turns into some friction within that group. And I, I'm saying all of these things in what would maybe be a spoiler section in a different movie, but I, th- this all happens in the space of like five minutes and it doesn't amount to much of anything. Like the protest ends exactly as you would expect it to. The barricades eventually come down and the, the police end up tearing ass in and, and that that's kind of the end of the story. I, I don't know what this article would look like in the real magazine, but I thought the real article was about, don't the French students burn down like a stock exchange or something? I'm not sure. Uh, if you're talking about an event that happens in real life, this didn't happen in the movie. No, no, of course, the the movie didn't have stakes. <laughs> uh, I think the real protests had to do with capitalism, and I think they burned down the, the you know stock exchange in Paris or something. I'm just reading through the cast list for that segment, and there are a bunch of actors here that I recognize, including Christoph Waltz, who makes an appearance on screen for maybe 30 seconds. He's there. He's there for dinner, and then the dinner breaks up, and that's it. Yeah, Lucinda doesn't like him, we don't know why, and then he's gone. 
So the other, uh, I would say, probably the strongest performance here uh, among the writers is probably Jeffrey Wright as, as Roebuck Wright. And, and once again, we get an extraneous framing device here where he is uh, telling his story on a talk show uh, in, in living color, I might add. Um, this film's use of black and white cinematography and kind of selectively uh, cutting in co- uh, color was an interesting choice. Um, you know, it's, it's also shot in four by three. So this feels like the revolution playing out in a way that is televised. It makes those moments of technicolor brilliance feel that much more cathartic when they're happening. We see these players assembling around a table and we see them about to have a feast. But when they actually eat the jailhouse food as prepared by by this uh, this whiz bang chef, Nescafier, there we go, played by Stephen Park. The camera is whipping around the table, and we get to see we get it just slowly enough that we can see each of their faces reacting in ecstasy to these kind of over the top and ridiculous foods. Like it feels like a combination of gourmet meets prison. Like it's it's gourmet as prepared by a guy with a limited budget and limited ingredients who's cooking some animals that he just kind of found in found wandering the streets, including literal pigeons. I'm sure you probably didn't approve of that aspect of it, Daniel. Am I right? I did not. No, I think it was pigeon blood pudding or something like that. I believe at one point he did creme de tabac, which would be a tobacco-flavored pudding. So I look forward to uh, binging with Babish, attempting to recreate these dishes at some point. It's a smoky pudding. There was definitely a scene involving a shot of liquor with a with an egg in it and an oyster. Uh, that was at the very beginning. We saw an elaborate drinks tray being pr- being prepared. Um, there is a good amount of food and drink porn here in this scene, and that is, that is probably the peak of it, though, because we pretty much abandon the chef plot at that point and go on to the police chief, the commissaire's son being kidnapped by a gang of the French outfit of the, uh, the various mafiosos who want to... Uh, Basically, they want their underworld accountant to be released, and if that doesn't happen, they're going to kill the kids. So that's the premise, um, is we have this high-stakes kidnapping. Does it feel high-stakes as we're watching it, Daniel? It does not. It does not feel high-stakes I agree with that. I, I did not fear for this child's life for even one second. Because Wes Anderson doesn't kill people on screen. Like anyone who dies in a Wes Anderson film you know, dies off-screen. Sometimes horribly, I might add, but yeah, always off screen. I was half expecting one of the many times when the cops opened fire on this building uh, for, you know, the kid just, to just end up dead during one of those. But um, as you know, the, there there are very few extraneous murders in this thing. It all feels very, very showy. Like, oh, now it's time for the shootout. And the shootout is beautiful, and they clearly spent a lot of money on it, but that's about it. And, you know, I bet the direction was fantastic. The direction given to the actors and actresses. It was all very, very um, considered and definitive and precise. I appreciate all the setup, but the execution uh, fell flat the whole time. Yeah, did you notice that the lead kidnapper was played by Ed Norton? Oh, yeah, I can never miss Ed Norton. I see Ed Norton, like, the second, the, the frame, he shows up on screen. I'm like, here's Ed Norton, here's Ed Norton. I believe his voice shows up before his before his face shows up on screen. But, yeah, that was definitely him. I also particularly liked Liev Schreiber, uh, who plays the talk show host, uh, interviewing Jeffrey Wright. I thought he was fantastic. I could not get enough of this guy. Um, and very, very much nailing a style of TV uh, chat show that was prominent in the 1960s. So, uh, much appreciated there. But again, it doesn't amount to much. I mean, we can keep going over the story beats of this, but the reason why we haven't done a spoiler section is because we don't think any of these stories particularly matter. Um, You know, you would read through this issue of the magazine, but you would never really be turning the page with anticipation of whatever's going to happen next. So that's kind of all I got, Daniel. Yeah, it's hard to... I mean, normally I have more to add, but I guess kind of felt bored (laughs) the whole time. And I I guess I, I hate saying that because... It is such a beautifully shot and directed film, but I need story. (laughs) I need reason to care about the characters. Wes Anderson is an artist, but he's an artist who creates memorable characters and memorable situations. And I can tell you all of my favorite plot lines from Rushmore, from uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel in particular, from the Royal Tenenbaums. You know, this is a guy who is a good storyteller, and I don't understand why he decided to go this route. But as an anthology, this largely does not succeed. Anthologies only work if the individual stories feel cohesive and feel like their act- their outcomes matter. And I did not get that feeling while watching this. So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this a strong swing, but it's definitely a miss. Yeah, I, I don't really have a whole lot to add to that. I think you're accurate in that assessment. Not only because I agree with it, but because I don't know how you can watch this film and really be jazzed by what you see. 
Unless you are just a diehard New Yorker fan, you know, New Yorker fan, then... Uh, I know exactly how I could watch this film and be jazzed by what I see, because as a French speaker and as a, as an enthusiast of French culture... A personal French? I felt pandered to while watching this. So, it, you know, all the different little bits of French language, all the different little bits of... Little, little details of French culture that were present on screen, I appreciated those, but they didn't amount to anything, so I felt pandered to as I was Just watching. watch a French movie, then. Yeah, which is, uh, I think, the, the route we decided to go uh, with this. With friend of the show, Jason, uh, decided to uh, pick out a fr- what I thought was a French New Wave film, but apparently was part of a subset called The Left Bank. So uh, I am completely ignorant of this period of French film history. So uh, I look forward to uh, to learning more about that. So if you have any feedback on our discussion of The French Dispatch, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. And now on to our review of Last Year at Marion Bad. <laughs> Pourquoi vous attendrai-je Je vous ai moi-même attendu longtemps. Dans vos rêves Je vous aimais. Je suis sûre que vous inventez. Vous m'aviez demandé de ne plus vous revoir. Vous laissez-moi. <rire> That was from the trailer of L'année dernière à Marienbad, or Last Year at Marienbad, the film from 1961 by director Alan Rene. Uh, I actually misspoke earlier. It was a different Alan who wrote the uh, script for this one. That was Alan Robe Grier, but it was, in fact, Alan Rene who directed the film. This is a French-Italian film from 1961. Rene is known as... Uh, he's, he's actually not exactly part of the French New Wave. He is part of what is known as the French Left Bank, which is uh, sort of a subset of the New Wave that I was not familiar with. Uh, as best I can tell, these are sort of the indie darlings of the French New Wave. These are the ones who, they were not as financially successful and they were not as well known, but there wasn't really any animosity between them and there was a lot of exchange between uh, the left bank filmmakers and uh, the more mainstream French New Wave filmmakers. A lot of actors and writers worked in both spaces. Um, it seems to have been just a, a cordial uh, part of the French film industry in the 1960s and 50s. Uh, this film stars Giorgio Albertazzi as an unnamed man, uh, Delphine Serig as uh, an unnamed woman, that's going to be the theme, and Sasha Pitoff uh, as another man who may be the woman's husband. Now, for the sake of ease, I'm going to suggest that we refer to these characters with the nicknames that I gave them in my notes. Whenever I wanted to refer to the man, I simply said he or him. If Whenever I wanted to refer to the woman, I simply said she or her. And whenever I wanted to refer to Sasha Pitoff, I just called him Sasha. So that's what we're going with. Um, in the screenplay, they are apparently known as A, X, and M, respectively, but that seems maddening to try to keep track of on a podcast. So they are he, her, and Sasha. Everybody good with that? Good. Works for me. Now, who is that voice that just tuned in here? Of course, I'm here with Daniel. We have a special guest. Who you heard in the first segment, but we've also got special guest and friend of the show, whose name has come up more than once on this show, uh, Jason. Now, Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, Jason, in addition to being an old friend of both of ours, he also may or may not be employed by a certain major streaming platform. Uh, so, Jason, um, it was you that suggested this film and, in fact, successfully infiltrated the podcast. So I'm going to start with you. What made you pick this particular film? I've been trying to put together a list of just random old films that I've never seen. The pandemic has really tried to bring out some of the more creative film choices. French New Wave sounded like a great place to start. Wanted to do something I'd never seen before. This one had come up on a lot of lists, and so I'd started going, okay, let's let's try that one. Last Year at Marion Bud is a film that has a reputation. Uh, it's a film that I had heard the name before, but I had not heard much else about it. But reading up just a little bit on it, it's, it's a film that people keep coming back to. It is on many lists, and it is on... It is on lists of both the best films ever made and also the most overrated and pretentious films ever made. <laughs> it is as likely to inspire a critic to say that it is uh, uh, that that it is mesmerizing um, as it is to say that it is a soporific slog, uh, you know, pretentious, narratively unconventional, doesn't really have a plot. And I think all of those sentiments are true. And what it comes down to when watching this film, it's entirely going to be down to what your personal reaction to it was while you were watching it. And so... Guys, I'm going to go uh, go through you one by one here. So first off, Jason, what was your reaction to this film as you were watching it? I'm glad that I saw it. That is my main reaction. It was not my favorite, and it took me three sittings. I fell asleep the first sitting, and then I had to cut the second sitting in half. 
in order to go watch Squid Game. Well, we've all been there with Squid Game, except for Daniel, who is uh, still a holdout at this point. I, I don't know, Daniel, are you ideologically opposed to watching that series or... Uh... Me? Absolutely. I have no interest in it. That's too bad. Squid Game is fantastic, but... Uh, I... No, it's not. I've seen Hunger Games. I've seen Battle Royale. It's the same fucking thing. Well, I mean, he wrote the script in 2008, so he would have been a pioneer in this if he could have gotten it made a little bit faster. But, That's not uh, my that, problem. You know, that is what it is. <laughs> um, apparently, it's been streamed uh, around 90 million times, generated almost a billion in revenue for uh, for Netflix. So uh, I'm not sure where that figure came from, but that's that's what the one I saw throwing about. So it seems to be doing pretty well for itself. It doesn't need my support. That said, uh, I would not have interrupted this film to watch it. This film is only 93 minutes long. So uh, to anyone I say who could not make it through it, uh, I will say I did put it off uh, one night because I was feeling a bit a bit sleepy myself and I didn't want this movie to suffer for it. But uh, this film is not difficult to get through. It is a uh, it is a fairly short watch. And uh, while it's a little bit repetitive and it is a bit hypnotic, I did not have any trouble getting through it. But Daniel, what did you think of this film? Break out your uh, psychology textbooks. We're going for a deep dive on this one. It kept my interest the whole time. I, I watched it in a single sitting without coffee. Uh, I, I mostly kept up with it because I was like, okay, this is experimental. This is unique. And it doesn't have a stated plot. It doesn't follow conventional cinema. So let's figure out what it's supposed to be about with the various clues and different scenes that we that we experience. And I have some theories, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, uh, both of you, on what those, what your theories are for what, what is this stupid movie even about. Um, but you know what? I'm glad I saw it. Like, uh, to Jason's point, it, it was unconventional, it was interesting, and I'm glad I saw it. Daniel, I'm quite surprised to hear that reaction from you. I, I know, right? Sometimes I one, am surprising, I... unlike Squid Game. I have to say, I was utterly mesmerized by this film. I, I think that it's it's a film that, as it was starting, I was a little worried about it because it was doing a lot of things that I've seen in later films. It was it did have sort of a dreamlike quality to it. It used a lot of voiceover narration, voiceover narration that may or may not have been actual dialogue. And as we're cruising through the corridors of this ornate hotel um, and grounds, and we're hearing this man describe going through this ornate hotel and grounds and we hear him saying the same paragraph or so description over and over and over again i almost fell asleep because that's what it felt like was happening it felt like mm -hmm. uh, you know it, it, it felt like that dreamlike sort of maze where your mind is inventing the architecture as you go and it all makes sense to you in the moment but you couldn't describe it to anyone else if you tried oh it was good asmr i was like oh yeah i'm relaxing to this let's talk more about the soffits <laughs> well it also i mean we we get to see that there's a crowd of people in this in this hotel they're all they're all wealthy uh you know kind of socialites and they're all doing rich people things like hanging out in the parlor and playing variations on Nim, that game where you pick up the matchsticks. Oh, okay, okay, explain explain Nim, because I don't understand why you don't, on turn two, just take all of the matchsticks except for one and say I win. I would encourage anyone who's curious about the matchstick game to look up Nim. that's N-I-M on Wikipedia. There is a, there's an entire mathematical theory on how to play this game. It's been but played since no ancient theory. times. I just and take... On turn two, I take all the matchsticks and I say I win. Let's do something else. You're only allowed to take all of them within a single row, Daniel. That's not a valid move, so you would lose. But what the crowd is at one point hollering at the characters as they're playing this game that it's pointless and whoever goes whoever goes first ends up winning, or, or maybe whoever goes second ends up winning. I don't actually remember it's what they're hollering. But the point is, whoever was saying that was wrong and was proven wrong in that very scene. Now, this would be a very good time to mention that we are not going to do a spoiler section for this film, and there's a reason for that because this film does not follow a conventional narrative structure because the two characters in the film, the man and the woman, are essentially at war as to what the story of the film actually is. The man approaches the woman and the woman is there at this hotel. We don't know how long she's been there, but we know she's probably there with this other man, Sasha, who may be her husband. And this man is telling her, a year ago, you and I met at Marienbad, or it might have been Frederiksbad. He's not exactly sure which garden, which, which ornate palace garden that they were in, but it was one of the bods. And we had a whirlwind romance there. We met amongst the statues. We met amongst the fountains. We, we said quiet little words to each other, and we were going to run away together. And you told me at the time that we have to wait a year, and maybe we'll do it then. And that's 
basically it. I've just described the entire plot as it's laid. I mean, and we get more details of that plot as the as the film goes on. But the woman who is hearing this explanation given to her does not remember any of this and insists that it never happened, insists that she's never met this man before. And yet we see this dance of persuasion happening throughout the film. And there are times where the man seems borderline violent. There are times where he seems like he's gaslighting her. There are times where there are times where it feels like she believes him, and there are times where it feels like she's a willing participant in this, and there are times where it feels like she's, uh, you know, she's the the victim in a psychological drama, and this and this guy is her tormentor. It is unrequited love as a Sisyphean hell amid a uh, like a like a dreamy psychological thriller, and all of that through just people wandering hallways and talking about an event that may or may not have ever happened. I mean, it's it's remarkable how well this movie works for how simple it is. So, yeah. Jason. I have a theory, and I want to see if you agree with my theory. So my theory is that this whole movie takes place in this dude's head, that he's just flittering about between different memories, both in the past, the present, and the future, like just made-up memories. And each of them, he's working on scenarios for how he could woo this gal, who has some sort of autonomy in the dream world, because even even in his memories and even in his dreams, she ain't that into him. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the movie. And, and uh, Sasha is the what? What do the men's rights activists say? The best male. He's an incel. Sigma? Is he sigma now? Oh yeah, possibly. Sigma. Yeah. So <laughs> Sasha's a sigma male, and <laughs> our, he's black pilled. Yeah, and yeah, and our, our uh, protagonist here is definitely a beta. You know, maybe it was during the, my my first of the three viewings. I was kind of going down that route. I was thinking that he was really into this girl. And he may or may not have actually been talking to her. But I don't know. My opinions changed subsequently through the rest of the watch. Well, how did it change? I think that all of these conversations did take place. But I think that the time didn't matter. That last year, this year, the current time, it's all the same. uh, At least from their perspective. So what you're saying is time is a flat circle, Jason. <laughs> it was a flat circle. And I was catching that from the beginning of the film when we just had that continuous loop of that initial dialogue. The play, you mean, right? Yeah, the, the, the play just over and over and over yeah. uh, for the first five minutes or however long. And yeah, I don't there, know if the plot matters so much, I, but I do 100% think that they are just in purgatory, literal purgatory. But I don't know about the rest of them. So, guys, I think it might be a little bit wrong-headed to try and solve the plot of this film, honestly. I my, my reaction by the end of this is, it doesn't matter what happens and it doesn't matter what's true. The point of this was to meditate on the unreliability of memory, on the fleeting nature of feelings and romance, on how, uh, the, how our feelings can affect our perspective on these events. What these two remember of whatever happened in Mary and Bad is not real. It's just their own perception of what happened, and they may not agree as to what had actually happened. There's one of the best scenes in the film, it's so enjoyable, is when he is finally telling her about the moment that they came to her bedroom together. And this is presumably the moment where they where they're having sex for the first time, you know, in the, amid this whirlwind romance, and she's insisting this didn't happen. She's insisting they've never been in a bedroom together. And this would be creepy in any other context that he's trying to persuade her that this event happened. But what we see is we see the flashback version of her and we see her in the feathered floor length negligee that he described. And then we see the past version of her fighting against his narration. And he keeps saying, no, it didn't happen that way. You, you couldn't see the uh, garden from in there. No, you, uh, you didn't go out the door. You stayed in there. Or, you know, he keeps telling her details and she keeps not obeying the narrative as he's laying it out. And this is the past flashback version of her. Now, the movie, at a certain point, fully abandons any distinction between past and present. So to mm-hmm. your point, Jason, that is, I'm right there with you, that now and then are a continuum that exist simultaneously throughout this film because the film starts out with a clean separation between their wardrobes. Did you guys notice that? Mm-hmm. They had black tie in the present day. And in the past, they had what I guess I would describe as garden formal, something that's, uh, you know, maybe an outdoor suit and an outdoor dress that you could comfortably wear, you know, when it's when it's a sunny day out. And then at a certain point, they're wearing their 
honestly, I found it more alarming to see them wearing their past clothes in the present inside the hotel. It just felt wrong. <laughs> like they're in the wrong place. Like they've mm-hmm. traveled through time and it just starts messing around with that. And of course, the outfits take on important roles because, you know, you've got the feathered negligee as the moment of seduction, as the moment of them coming together, a moment that may or may not have ever happened. And also it might be a moment of betrayal and violence, depending on which version of this event that we actually believe. A gun discharges at one point in this film, and I could not tell you who fired it or who was killed by it. The movie offers multiple answers to that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got the sense that he kills her, whether that's because she spurns his advance or whatever. And this now, is who, all taking who place ki- in his head. Who kills her? He kills uh, her or Sasha kills her? The man kills her. Because at one point, we see Sasha discharge his gun, and we see her in the past in her negligee collapse on the bed right after that happens, but we don't see any reaction to that. We don't see anybody confronting that this has occurred. And right after that, he's like, no, that's not right. That's not, like, that's not what happened. And yeah, then we I need you alive. He literally refuses to accept her version of events because he needs reality to be different than it actually is. Mm-hmm. He needs this romance to have happened the way that he described it. Yeah, I was thinking that, you know, a narrative that was fun to have and entertain was they were having this affair or they were about to begin this affair and Sasha found them or found her preparing for him and shot and killed her and later confronted him outside on that stone railing. Which we see collapsing. Right. He either was shoved over or he fell to his death. We're not sure, but the, the camera dwells on that railing after that scene. It comes back to it several times. It's really, it's really quite something. But it doesn't dwell long enough to really know for sure or determine whether it even matters because later Sasha seems to become aware of the whole situation. I mean, I definitely love to think about the idea that both she and him were ghosts for lack of a better word, talking about everything that had happened and then, you know, whether or not they're in the in-between or in purgatory or whatever, talking about what's happened before. And that's why nobody can really remember for sure. Sasha definitely seems to, come up and yeah yeah they were trying to relive it but sasha was like yeah you guys don't know what you're talking about but i know that you're gone and you're gone tomorrow that sasha's such a stag but also that would imply he would also be dead (laughs) so i don't know sasha spends most of this movie playing games by himself in the parlor and uh, i I feel like he was the one winning this plot because he was not the one constantly at war uh with another character as to what the events were he was just having a bit of fun on on what was presumably his vacation uh including a trip to the gun room at one point so we actually see several men standing and firing weapons behind their backs it's very strange we never see what they're shooting there's a lot of gunplay involved in this movie (laughs) But uh, you you guys both, it sounds like, went in the direction of death or purgatory as an interpretation here, which which seems fine. Um, we obviously cannot know how widely seen this movie was among filmmakers, among film enthusiasts, so we can't really say what its influences are. But if you had to pick some modern films that you think uh, sort of remind you of this, uh, what, what comes to mind for you? I'll give you one straight away. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind mm. reminds me of this movie. Yeah, that was what uh, I was going to go with. Well, now you're going to have to pick a different one. <laughs> well. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, the, you know, The Sixth Sense or any movie in which a character is dead the whole time, but we don't learn it until the end. With Ooh, how that. about The Shining? Yeah, The Shining's a good one. Yeah. The Shining is a very good choice, especially the way that this place is depicted, the way it's mm-hmm. overpowering dimensions and scale and twists and turns and rooms uh, all kind of run together. That's a good choice. Any others? Hmm. You have to pick a film that doesn't adhere to a conventional timeline or plot. And that makes it hard because most movies do. I will say uh, Leos Carax's film, Holy Motors, that we watched uh, oh, yeah, Holy on the Motors, podcast yeah. last year, I think is a good a, a good uh, choice for, for similarity there. Um, that similar sort of dreamlike quality where we're not exactly sure who the main characters are or and we're not exactly sure what's happening to them. That definitely or fits why there. anything is happening. I'll, I'll mention another film by Iranian, by the late Iranian director Abbas Kiristami, and that was a film called Certified Copy that came out uh, back in 2010. And very similarly to this film, uh, it features a couple that, for one part of the film, they are acting like strangers who have just met, and for another part of the film, they are acting and talking as if they are a married couple that has been together for years. And the film never takes a firm position as to what exactly their relationship mm-hmm. is. 
Um, and there's a lot going on in that film. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of art as metaphor and the idea of whether a perfect copy of a piece of art is indistinguishable from the original or has. I mean, with all the discussion of NFTs after uh, <laughs> long after Karastami was dead, uh, I, I think he would appreciate that. But um, but yeah, the idea of a relationship is a perfect work of art, and the idea that if if two different people remember it differently, is one person's recollection different from the other? It, it, there's a lot of there's definitely a lot of uh, symbolic connection between that film and this one, and I have very little doubt that Kiarostami has seen this film. That's probably the most the most direct uh, influence that I've ever that I've seen from this film. I would say Fish and Cat, another wronging film, has a little bit of influence with this. Where oh, that's an interesting one, yeah. They they definitely play with time quite a bit because everything kind of loops back to itself. Fish and Cat, I'll go ahead and mention here, since it's a film that's unlikely to have been seen much outside of the film festival circuit, is a film that we reviewed, and it actually made my top 10 for that that year. Um, it's shot seemingly all in one continuous take, and it's all these different events uh, along, along the edge of a lake and the woods nearby during a kite flying festival uh, in the outskirts of Tehran. Um, and it's a fantastic film. Also, it's a horror film. Um, so we, now we, we've now seen a couple of horror films out of Iran. There's quite a uh, there's qu- quite a burgeoning horror genre out of there. I can't imagine why. It's a very happy place. It's one of the areas in which Iranian culture has a lot to say. Um, some of it obviously inspired by their by uh, you know their. their there was one uh, under the shadow that was inspired by their history of uh, of war with Iraq. Um, there's lots of other stuff that is inspired by elements of of the country's history. So, um, I think it's fair to say that uh, I have a hard time comparing Iranian films to this with any certainty because I just lack a lot of the cultural context that an Iranian viewer might have watching those films. Um, so I'm less confident making that comparison, but I can definitely understand why you made it. Uh, I think another one that was coming to mind as you were describing those films that I have not seen is an old college favorite, Vanilla Sky. I think that kind of some similar circular storytelling in that one as well. That was another one where we're not exactly certain what the nature of the reality therein is. That was a Cameron Crowe film from uh, 2001 with uh, Tom Cruise and Penelope Cruise, no relation. So... Yeah, um, I think uh, it's fair to say that any film that toys with reality probably owes some degree of debt to this film. But I, but again, we don't know. This is maybe just a formative film in that genre. Um, I, I can't really say how many people have seen it or how well known it is. It just seems like a film that just keeps popping up on on uh, interesting lists. And uh, Jason, I, I have to express my appreciation that you picked this film for us. You've not heard our segment on the French Dispatch, but neither Daniel nor I particularly liked that film. We, we thought it uh, was a, a lot of sound and fury uh, in the form of New Yorker cartoons signifying very little of a through line that runs through it. And this film, with somehow even less of a narrative through line running through it, somehow managed to captivate both of us. So clearly yeah. there are no rules and it's all about execution. <laughs> it's true. You know, Glenn, Jason friend of the podcast and current guest of the podcast is a big horror movie guy so mm. i hate horror but i would be willing to watch a favorite of his on review for the podcast jason did you and uh, your lady watch the movie malignant we did and i have opinions <laughs> well daniel hated it i was a big fan so you're you will find a, you will find a welcome reception either way i have not listened so i will have to look that one up it's okay. Daniel doesn't listen to the podcast either. <laughs> I, I really don't because I participate in the podcast and I already know what I said. Now, Jason, you are a big horror movie buff. Are there any upcoming horror films that excite you? Uh, Lamb in particular is the one that I'm most excited for. And another one just hit uh, PSOV is uh, The Night House, I think it's called. I have heard good things about The Night House and not much else, so I'm definitely interested in checking that one out. There's also a new Mike Flanagan series, uh, Midnight Mass. I uh, just finished Netflix, that I one even. the other oh, day. Oh, what did you think of that one? I have opinions on that one too, but largely enjoyed Fair it. Fair enough. I, I would say it's movies. comparable to the others in his trilogy, quote-unquote. All right. Well, Mike Flanagan made a film called Oculus uh, several years back. Which I loved. It was ab- absolutely brilliant oh, yeah. uh, movie with uh, with Karen Gillan. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Uh, and, of course, he's made a number of uh, – he had an overall deal with Netflix after that, and he's made a number of acclaimed horror films since then. I've seen about half of them, so uh, definitely somebody I want to check out more from. But, uh, gents, uh, any final thoughts about this film, about Last Year at Marienbad? Well, we haven't really talked about the, the cinematics itself. Like, we keep talking about the plot, and we've talked about the characters and what they may or may not have done, but everything that we're seeing is just magnificent. Every scene could be a poster. Every scene could be a painting. Every shot, rather, is is just beautiful. 
and tells so much just on its own. Yeah, I released a a thread on Twitter the the night that I watched this film, and I I just kept grabbing screenshots from the film as I was watching it on Canopy because I kept finding shots that I wanted to use. Initially, it was just so that I could have have one to embed as a thumbnail in the in the episode, mm-hmm. um, and then I just kept grabbing more. And finally, I just tweeted all of them uh, over the course of it just so people could see how gorgeous this movie was. Yeah. Um, we reviewed a num- we've gone back and reviewed a number of films uh, that are you know beyond 20 30 40 50 years old uh going back to uh, like lawrence of arabia we reviewed uh raging bull um we also did uh, this year we did the go between and look back in anger and uh those films are from 1971 1959 respectively and one thing that you always get more of in older films and not to say this that this this definitely happens in newer films too but it's less common is really thoughtful shot composition mm-hmm. um, particularly shot composition that involves deep background elements and we get a lot of that in this film because there are a lot of shots of this vast uh, palace garden where much of the film takes place and they have to think about everything that is in frame there they have to think about every detail every statue every shrub every person that is in frame if you want to shoot those people walking around far away, you've got to get people to walk all the way out there to their marks, make sure everybody's in the right spot, and then call action in a way they're going to be able to hear, and uh, either have them stand perfectly still, as happens in one shot in the film, or you know walk on cue. Um, there was a lot of that with, uh, particularly the go-between. There was a, there, there's one shot in particular where much of the action is happening in the foreground in front of a in front of a large tree, and there's a farmhouse and a vast field in the background and we see a character run from the farmhouse all the way up to the camera and i'm like that that character had to do that for real there's no <laughs> there's no faking that uh, you know somebody was out there running in the uh in, in the actual hot sun so you get that feeling watching movies like this that all these people had to come together and make this special thing and it's not to say that doesn't happen now it's just it's much less obvious now well now we have graphics guys in the background spending 100 hours tweaking every frame Oh, even more so now than before, because we've got so many of those people doing their work from home. So, you know, we've we've got entire seasons of television that were made by people who might never have seen each other in person. I mean, it's a remarkable change to the filmmaking process. And but it, it, I think it's fair to say that we've lost something. And, and the composition of the shots in this film really shows, uh, you know, what we've lost, because on, on such a such a steady schedule to just crank out content, there's not a lot of. There's not a lot of reason to compose your shots unless it really means something to you. So, yeah, shout out to Sasha Vierne, who is the uh, the cinematographer here, uh, as well as the director, Alan Rene. These are some very thoughtfully composed shots, and I very much appreciated them. Yeah, and I think that's what really helped me stay with the movie was that every shot was so well thought out. And my favorite little little uh, nugget was whenever everyone had to stand perfectly still. Oh, love and that. And you could see that like some people were better at it than others. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like the fact that there was that little bit of a, a wobble you know, with some of the characters, I'm like, they're really trying to stand still. This isn't digital effects. This isn't like some sort of you know film trickery. They just told everybody, stand still. Stand still for the next 30 seconds for like probably 10 takes. It also it makes the entire thing feel that much more theatrical because it feels less like less like this is a character walking through a frozen timescape and more like this is a character walking through a scene where suddenly everybody else in the room is still there, still present, still experiencing the flow of time exactly as you are. But all of a sudden they're not interacting with you at all. And you are the you are the odd person out. And that is oppressive to experience all of a sudden you're the only one moving in the entire room and everyone else stops like how freaky would that be (laughs) i think that this movie rightfully our our little digression into the horror genre notwithstanding i think it's fair to regard this movie as a horror film as a psychological horror film i think so at least yeah i don't know if i want to hang out this hotel no it's a a five-star hotel don't don't get me wrong but I don't know. Nim doesn't seem like I'm interesting in the game. Can't we just play poker or something? I'd play Nim. Uh, you got unlimited drinks, you know. A lot of games could be entertaining. So we have Giorgio Albertazzi and we have Delphine Serig as these two main characters. And I struggle to evaluate these performances because I was evaluating them from moment to moment. And I was evaluating them with no clear idea of what the character was supposed to be. So all I could rely on was the performance. And the performance often bent to whichever character was in control of the narrative at that moment. And mm-hmm. that, I think, is what makes these performances so impressive. Because we learn who's in control of the narrative through how they're behaving. 
You know, there are moments where he's glaring at her. There are moments where he's looking at her almost lovingly. Most of the time she is looking at him in a confused and hostile sort of way. But sometimes she's giving him a look of just an absolutely sultry look, bedroom eyes. And then there are other times where she's like, I think I'm succumbing to this, but I'm not sure. I don't I don't know if I want to do this. And that character's conflict is so important as the film goes on that it's all sold on their faces. And even as you're watching these pristinely composed shots of the hotel and the hotel grounds, I just found myself staring into their eyes the whole time. And that's a big part of why the movie is so mesmerizing. I just, I, I'm trying to get a read on these people. Yeah, constantly. she definitely had to convey a lot of emotion just with her eyes. Meanwhile, you know, Pepe Opio over here was like, do you not remember? Don't you remember <laughs> the time that we were over here on the balcony and then I, I touched your boob for like a fourth time? Well, and so much of this is this movie is definitely, uh, you know, of its time. The man is the main character here. She is almost entirely passive, but we hear that she wasn't passive before. We hear that she made some sort of decision before. We just don't know what that is. And that's gradually revealed over the course of this. So I think Delphine Sterig has quite a lot to do here, even though her character does not have quite a lot to say here. I think most of the time she's just sitting there and listening to this guy explain things to her. So I, I. I almost, uh, you know, I want to uh, get a female perspective on this. You know, not that women are a monolith on this, but it's got to feel differently watching this if you're not identifying as strongly with with the dude who's trying desperately to persuade this woman to, you know, get with him. I identify with Sasha. I definitely thought of you as I was watching Sasha because you seem like the guy who would not bother <laughs> with all this mess and go play games and uh, drink some whiskey for most of the runtime of this. But like, I'm here for a vacation. I don't understand what you all are doing, but I'm gonna go fire guns and drink whiskey and play matchstick games while I always win. Yep, grab a matchstick, light a cigar, and uh, and go for it. Yeah, it's uh... a proper Victorian good time. It's not Victorian. We know when this takes place. This is, you know this is the 1960s. This is Elizabethan. It's all Victorian to me. Now, now Jason, as a man of class and, and our L.A. correspondent, does this feel at home to you, to what you're accustomed to? I've definitely been places like it. That's uh, not where I live, <laughs> certainly. <laughs> Um, but everything did feel very upscale and almost over the top upscale. Like these people, yes, they're wealthy, they're well to do, but they don't have anything else to do but this pointless, boring, meandering leisure. Sounds nice, doesn't it? It kind of does, right? Wouldn't that be I nice? I think you've. You've hit on something pretty interesting about the film as well, which is that the lives of these rich people feels like the least interesting thing about this, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, that these two are pursuing a romance essentially because they're bored, but maybe because they're drawn to each other in this environment. But their romance is the most interesting thing that is happening at this hotel. And you wonder how everybody else at the hotel is not you know, sort of pursuing a side story of their own, but they're all just kind of, but I, I don't know that that also feels a bit deliberate on the movie's part. But you don't know that. Like you don't know if they're, if those people are not, if they, if this ever existed, that they weren't doing those things because this is just from the man's perspective. And so he's, That's he's, true. he's navigating these memories and these thoughts and he's remembering what people said as like background conversation while he was wooing the gal. Yeah, I think you're right about that, uh, Daniel. This is this is his recollection of what the and and you know to to Jason's point about the different sort of timelines flowing together here. Everybody else is uninteresting because they're unimportant to the story, and these are the main characters. Everybody else is unimportant. This is how you think of yourself when you're in a romance. You're the protagonist in this story, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's nobody else matters. That's how so, I think uh, of I'd, myself most days. Indeed. To speak to the opulence here, the only place that I have been that reminds me intensely of this place is Peterhof, which is Peter the Great's uh, palace. It's now a UNESCO World Heritage Site uh, up up against the Gulf of Finland, northeast or northwest of uh, St. Petersburg, Russia. Um, it's a gorgeous grounds. It's basically the Russian Versailles. It's very. It's intended to be very uh, sort of European chic from the 18th century, and it's ridiculous. It's a gigantic palatial estate with all the uh, all the stuff you would expect at uh, at actual Versailles. All the different uh, statues and draperies and uh, fountains and things like that. Um, in fact, I think the actual landscaper of, uh, of Versailles actually worked on it as well. Yeah, I think Peter the Great did a tour of the civilized West and took ideas that he liked and brought it back to uh, you know to Russia. 
Yeah, didn't he ban beards for a while? That seemed like, that was one of his ideas. Someone did that, yeah. One of the Peters, I'm not sure which one. There were a few Peters and a few Ivans, hard to, hard to say. Well, gents, any final thoughts about the film? I'd watch it again, and I'd probably stay awake through most of it, if not all of it. And I'd even put it on in the background just without any sound and just have it on and enjoy seeing it passively. We haven't talked much about the music by Francis Sarig, which oddly is the same last name as the uh, as the female lead here, but I'm not sure if there's any relation there. Definitely helps add to the dreamlike quality mm. here. It's very overpowering and, and moments where sort of big revelations seem to be happening are often uh, teed up by the soundtrack. But because we're never certain if what we're seeing actually happened it almost feels like the soundtrack is playing with us, you know, like it's like, it's, it's preying on our expectations a little bit. So, but I'm with you. I would definitely watch this again. It feels like it flew by for a film in which very little actually happens. Daniel, how about you? You know, I I think I'd be up for watching it again. I think there's enough to dig into for multiple viewings because it's so loosey goosey with time and uh, expectations and narrative structure. Yeah. Like I think that we, we could probably watch it again and have a completely different take as, as to what happened and what it means. Well, that is about all I've got. This is a film that will stick with you and you will definitely have some sort of strong reaction to it. If only uh, pride in making it through it without falling asleep. <laughs> so uh, gents, congratulations to all of you on that. Um, and Jason, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of last year at Marion Bad. If you have any feedback on our discussion, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in to filmwonk.net and have a good night. Je ne prends plus en tes promesses, tu m'as trop menti. Tu connaissais mon adresse, tu ne m'as pas écrit Tu m'as fait trop de peine quand tout au long des jours J'attendais que revienne l'écho d'un plus beau jour